if you take your Bibles, this is a Bible opening church or maybe app opening Bible church. <laughs> and open them to 1 John chapter 4. We made it to chapter 4. We got 4 and then we get to 5. I won't tell you what's coming after 1 John, but I'm already thinking about that and excited for that. But we have much work still to unpack in 1 John. The title of today's message is Preparing for Battle. Preparing for Battle. Now, I often mention this. Most of you are more than familiar with my love for sports. Whether it's competing or coaching There's an intensity that's needed for excellence, a drive, a conviction, sort of a warrior mentality. That's me, near and dear to my heart. But really, in all respects, that's many of you. Because sports is no different in many respects with our careers, with our parenting, with our marriages, grandparenting, whatever it may be, there's a certain level of commitment or intensity or passion that's needed for us to overcome the obstacles that most certainly await us in any area of life, whether it's sports, whether it's parenting, whatever it may be. It's often that deep-seated conviction and fortitude that enables us to overcome, to press on in the midst of those trials, which we all face, no matter what we're involved in. Now, life is full of joy and happiness, most certainly. But it's also about preparing for battles that await us, whether it's sports or career or parenting, just to name a few examples, none of us would take for granted the level of commitment it requires to persevere in those areas of life, or what about to protect, to protect the camaraderie of a team, to protect our careers, if you will, to protect our children in the midst of the battles that they'll face. That said, at the end of the day, our worldly battles will always pale in comparison to the battles that we all fight as born-again believers each and every day. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, you know the passage. States that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness. That's a battle that we all face daily. Now, perhaps some of us don't consider ourselves to be innately intentional or convictional or full of passion, if you will. That said, When it comes to a spiritual battle, God's word leaves no option for the contrary. We are commanded to stand firm against the devil. We're commanded and charged by God's word to be a people that are intensely committed to do so. From our message on biblical sexuality just several weeks ago, we asked the question, how are we toying with embracing ideologies such as Bill C-4, which is now law in the country of Canada? Well, let me now update that question. Only two weeks removed from that message. Let me update that question to how did we get here? good brother in the, in the Lord here in this church sent me a message via text only a day or so after that message that unfortunately news broke 
that in Lafayette, Indiana, of all places, not Los Angeles, California, no, not New York, New York, the city council there is looking at a similar ordinance to what we discussed in Bill C-4 here in our own backyard. Nevertheless, when it comes to the question, how did we get here? Sadly, I would argue it pertains to a major lack of one key ingredient, an absolute essential ingredient when it comes to preparing for our spiritual battles. You heard that one word and that one key ingredient with these precious little ones here this morning, and that is discernment. Friends, God's word not only desires that as believers we be found discerning, but requires that we be found discerning. That is the clear, black and white, bold theme of 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, our passage this morning. God desires and requires that we be found discerning. As for the churches in Asia Minor, the Gnostic threat created a need for discernment that was critical. As for the church today, the need is just as vital, just as imperative for us to be a healthy, vibrant, protected church. In some respects, some of us might feel as though that ship is already sailed. Nevertheless, let us here at Miriam Christian Chapel continue to strive to be a people who are discerning a people keenly aware of the threats that we face, a people equipped to stand firm against the devil. That's our responsibility. That is a clear charge from Scripture. And with that said, would you stand with me, please, as we read our passage? 1 John chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6. This is the word of God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth. And the spirit of air. You may be seated. Our first step is number one, know the need. Know the need. In this first verse, there are two present tense commands that cause us immediately to take note. We've discussed the significance of a present tense command in the original language. It communicates the fact that we are called on an ongoing basis to practice these commands. What are those commands? Number one, don't believe every spirit. And then number two, test the spirits. 
What's more, the verse goes on to say that there are many false prophets. Now, those statements in and of themselves are convincing enough for us concerning the importance of us and the need for discernment, to have a need for discernment. That said, the context of 1 John only continues to affirm that need. We've seen it in chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. John lays out the characteristics of what a true Christian is. And we examine the fact that a true Christian practices righteousness. It is their lifestyle. The one who is not practices sin. In chapter 2, 18 through 27, John clearly demonstrated the reality that there are imposters. Jude referred to them as creeping in. Unnoticed, those that were marked beforehand. And then in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, John plainly communicated what I titled a contradiction of faith looks like. Children of God practice righteousness. Children of the devil practice sin. So, at least within our passage this morning and the context as a whole in 1 John, one can't help but acknowledge the need that we have to be discerning. What about the analogy of faith? Does Scripture interpret Scripture here? Just a couple passages. Proverbs 14, 15 reads, The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. And then in Matthew 7, 5, you know the passage, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Or what about that well-known passage in Acts 17? Speaking of the Bereans, we hear, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. This is the Apostle Paul bringing the message of the word of God. And the Bereans said, we need to examine this to see that it is true. So the idea in our passage this morning, throughout 1 John, throughout Scripture as a whole, is one of careful inspection and examination in light of the word of God. Why? To use the verbiage of this verse here, verse 1, to see whether they are from God. Now, in our second step, we'll look closer of what that looks like. How does that work? Be that as it may. For now, I don't want us to gloss over these two words, from God. Within this passage, you can see verses 1 through 6. It's used quite often, six times John uses it as a matter of emphasis, a point of emphasis. And then once in contrast to from the world. The key for us to grasp here is this divine link that's being communicated. In the original, we could even say that it is out of God. We'll see even as we progress through the passage that even our own nature has been birthed out of God, supernaturally regenerated. Such we were, those of us that were in Christ, are in Christ. Although, there's also a sense in which the false prophets are not from God. They're not divinely linked. John described it as such in chapter 2 of this letter, verse 4, when he says, the one who says, I have come to know him 
and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So, we're going to continue to see the significance of this from God. But for now, our understanding of this divine distinction allows us to be aware of the need for discernment. Simply stated, there are children of God and there are children of the devil. And that in and of itself clearly demonstrates the absolute need for discernment. Well, then finally, John says that these false spirits or imposters have gone into the world. The grammar communicates something that is complete in the past, but also with ongoing significance. So, unfortunately, as it was the case for the churches of Asia Minor, it will continue to be the case for us and into the future. We cannot escape the need for discernment. In Second John, verse 7, not the second chapter of this letter, but in Second John, verse 7, he warns them in a similar fashion when he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. All that to say, there is no debating the fact that there are wolves, have been, are now, and will continue to be intent on fleecing the flock. That reality in and of itself forces us to not be naive to the fact, to be on guard. Now that said, what might be an action for us regarding this necessary step to know the need and importance of discernment? Allow me to offer one thought. Would we benefit from having more patience in matters such as this? Patience when it comes to the acceptance of so-called reported truth. Unfortunately, for years now, Christianity has become more persuaded by the trends of the day. What's hot? What's trendy? What's relevant? What's innovative? What's new? God's word would call us, and I would challenge you here today, my friends, don't believe every spirit. Test them to see if they are from God. And testing takes time. Be patient with what you embrace, with what we embrace as a body. And that said, how do we do that? We know the truth. And that's our second step here this morning is number two, know the truth. Look with me again at verses two and three concerning this knowledge of the truth. We read, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. Now here in verse 2, John confirms that believers have the ability to know truth. Now this stems directly from what we examined last week in chapter 3, verse 24. One can certainly rest assured in knowing that they can rest in the power of the Spirit that indwells them. Now during that message, we also looked at 
the context of the Spirit from chapter 2, verse 20, as well as chapter 2, verse 27. In that context, we looked at the work of the Spirit in illumination. That work that shines a light through you, identifying the objective truth of Scripture. All born-again believers have that magnificent power indwelling you. You know truth because the Spirit abides in you. Moreover, you can also rest assured in knowing that that same Spirit that indwells you will continue to grow and enhance your knowledge of the truth. Children of God practice righteousness. They grow in grace and truth and knowledge. Notwithstanding, just in case some of you here this morning don't feel equipped enough, let me encourage you, no matter where you're at in your journey and knowledge of Christian truth, the simplistic knowledge of the gospel is enough to be discerning. You've heard me mention the study of apologetics before. I love it. The defense of the Christian faith. Unfortunately, within that study, there are some that propose that apologetics can only be done well through rigorous academic study. This is so frustrating to me. Number one, it's simply not true. That rigorous academic study is what's required in order to practice apologetics. And number two, it is so discouraging and disheartening to believers who at times already feel as though they are not equipped to be discerning, to defend the Christian faith. That said, be encouraged. Simplistic knowledge of truth is enough to be discerning and to use our apologetic study to practice the defense of the Christian faith. Let's examine how John masterfully connects the dots of context here while demonstrating that very fact, that argument that I'm making. You'll recall from chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning of the letter, when describing one of John's major themes, we identified three major themes for the letter as a whole, one of them being a proper belief, second being a willful obedience, and third being a selfless love. But in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, John identifies... What a proper belief looks like. We identified two primary points within that theme. What were those points? It's no coincidence. They're the same simplistic truths we see in our passage here this morning. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Jesus Christ is the incarnate one. And he is also the divine one. That's simple. This simplistic knowledge of truth revolves around Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. And then secondly, as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, being incarnate, could not help but be divine as well. He was, he is, and he will continue to be 100% God and 100% man. Likewise, those who reject this, John states, are not from God. They are actually, as the text states, the spirit of the Antichrist. They're, in essence, taking the place of Christ. They're against him. Another reason 
for us to be keenly aware of the need for discernment. With all that said, though, how does a simplistic knowledge of Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, and the divine one contribute to our growth in discernment? Contribute to our encouragement that we can be discerning. Perhaps the Holy Spirit even now is stirring up points of application for you. I'll offer just a point for each, acknowledging this is not exhaustive. The first, regarding the incarnate one. Would we be on guard against teaching that would lessen the power of the atonement? It's because of Christ's humanity and subsequent death that our redemption was actually accomplished. That's exactly why he is the perfect advocate, as we describe in chapter 2, verse 1. The perfect advocate for his people, for the sheep. And then secondly, regarding the divine one, because he is God, because he is deserving of all glory, would we be cautious and discerning of men and doctrine that are more man-centered, philosophically, practically, whatever it looks like. Don't believe teaching, beloved, that elevates man in any area of doctrine, practice, or life. Even going back to our study of the purpose of the church, some of you might recall that a fundamental, foundational purpose of the church is that we are doxological. That word meaning that we are all about the glory of God alone. Sola Dea Gloria. With that said, before we move to our next step, I want us to also address this word confess as well. As I wholeheartedly believe it adds another layer of application for us concerning this step. You'll notice that John uses it two times in these verses. And it piggybacks nicely off of our discussion last week centered around true saving faith. This word conveys so much more than just a simplistic intellectual affirmation of belief. It's emphatic in its declaration, often public in nature. John intends to communicate a level of commitment that's obvious for all to see. To use John's context, we might even say the one who practices righteousness openly is an example of a life that confesses. Nevertheless, how does it help us? How does this idea of confession, understanding it in the original context, help us? How does it help us grow in discernment? How about we simply practice what we preach? Paul in Philippians chapter 4 talked about dwelling on righteousness, learning righteousness, and then practicing righteousness. If confessing here is understood as a life that reflects with emphasis what a proper belief looks like, Understood in this context, allowing us to examine what is true and what is right by, why, by how one confesses and lives their life. That said, let's take that and apply it to ourselves. Why not? 
A life such as this will most certainly draw nearer to Christ. And as James says, those who draw near to Christ, he draws near to them. This will inevitably produce greater levels of discernment as we live out confessionally what we believe with all of our heart and soul and mind. That will certainly produce strength in us. And that provides me with the perfect segue for our third step, and that's number three. Know your strength. Know your strength. Look at verse four with me. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Beloved, this is your cannonball. This is your warhead. This is your strength behind it all. We come back to these two words, from God. And here we come to a personal and powerful confidence like no other. John, in essence, is saying, if I put it in my own words, dear friends, dear friends, you are a supernatural new creation. You have and you will conquer. Amen. And why? Because the Spirit of God abides in you and is greater than the God of this world. Amen. Hallelujah. If we were a charismatic church, we'd be running down the aisle right now. Don't get, don't tempt me. <laughs> Considering this lack of discernment and the traps of this world, what is it that often opens the door to that. In chapter 2, verse 16, John described it as the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and then the boastful pride of life. He went on to say that those who practice such things are not from the Father. Now, of course, this is not to say that we as believers are not impervious to these temptations, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Nevertheless, what we are is a people from God. In chapter 5, verse 4, listen to how John describes our strength. He says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I'm coming back to my opening introduction and that warrior spirit, that conviction, victory. You know, even, like I said, if you feel as though you're not convictional or intense in nature, as a believer, you are. Because of the spirit that resides in you. You have victory. You will overcome. There's certainly a sense in which the church has failed in naivety concerning the need for discernment universally, church-wide. There's unquestionably a failure in the knowledge of the truth which has contributed to a lack of discernment. We wouldn't be where we're at discussing Bill C-4 or any other topic that we would like to discuss. Notwithstanding, the neglect of the strength behind us all has possibly been our greatest downfall. Now let me explain that. We often see this in two unfortunate categories. First, a watered-down, weak, 
and feeble church that's more concerned with placating man rather than giving glory to God alone. Or secondly, a church that seems strong on the surface, yet in all reality simply strong in the doctrines and actions and philosophies of a man-centered approach to ministry. Friends, either way, both of these are weak and susceptible to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Both of these are susceptible to a lack of discernment. As for us, here at MCC, let us be a people who know our strength, a people who boast in the Lord, a people who boast in a strength that in faith rests in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit who models by Himself a commitment to glorify the Father alone. The Spirit who we've seen illumines the objective truth of Scripture. The Spirit who has overcome He who is in the world. In Ephesians, Paul warned the church do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Friends, would we take that charge, that command to heart ourselves? Would we pursue with all conviction a deeper relationship with the Spirit through His Word? All the while acknowledging the mystery. Not I but the grace of God that is in me. That's a God-centered, God-first theology and practice and application that will inevitably grow our discernment. As you seek to know him more, that great surpassing value of knowing Christ through his word, Pray that the Spirit would open your eyes, reveal the truths of Scripture, that you might grow in matters of discernment. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul described it as such. He said, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, not through human wisdom. With that strength in place, Let's turn our attention to the next step. And that's number four. Know your enemy. Look again with me at verse five. Know your enemy. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. And that first word, they... Connecting us back to verses 1 and 3. Who are the they? They are the false prophets. Those who don't confess Christ. Not to mention, we now come back to that contrast I mentioned. The contrast of from God. They are from the world. To use John's gospel language, we would say that they are from their father, the devil. Moreover, their speech, as John writes in the present tense, is a reflection of a lifestyle that practices this. 
And then further identify how the enemy works. He says the world listens to them. Would we expect anything else? In John chapter 15, verse 19, we're reminded. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. What about Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 4? He writes, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. This is what the world wants. You can finish this saying for me, as the old saying goes. Birds of a feather flock together. That's right. And yet, why are some churches so surprised that their message is falling on deaf ears? It comes back to what we previously discussed. A man-centered theology and philosophy that appeals to a world that isn't listening. Nor do they desire to listen. All the while forgetting, as the verse states, they are from the world. They speak from the world. And they only listen to the world. Why is that the case? Because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. We understand this. Such were each and every one of us apart from the grace of God. Satan had blinded our eyes. We were spiritually dead, incapable of knowing truth. But God, being rich in mercy, chose you, gifted you repentance and faith, leading to the knowledge of the truth, caused you to be born again. That's an amen moment. What was the instrument he used? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The word of God is the imperishable seed which caused men to be born again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. So, how might we apply this concerning the fourth step in our desire to grow in discernment? First off, remember, the world is not your enemy. And I'm preaching to myself there. I fall into this trap myself at times. The world is not our enemy. Our enemy is the God of the world, Satan himself. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness. The world may hate you. They may not listen to you. But you know what? Each and every one of us in our past lives, we're in that same boat. Hating truth. Not listening to truth. But there was someone in your life that God used to love you in compassion, to share truth the word of God, the gospel message to you in the face of your hatred of what is true. We must not forget 
this knowledge of how the enemy works and that the world is not our enemy, but Satan himself. And what is the remedy to that reality? Not the next biggest ear-tickling message or philosophy of appeasement. That's that man-centered approach. But a strong, bold, intense, convictional gospel of truth and love. Is that not what we discussed even in our message on biblical sexuality? What is the motivation for our stance? It's love. But it's bold. It's strong. It's resilient. And it will not waver from truth. That's discernment. And if nothing else, that will serve to protect us now and into the future. By God's grace. And be that as it may, I have one more step that dovetails off of our strength from verse 4. And I know what you're thinking. Five points is too much, Pastor. I promise you I'll be brief, although it should be extremely helpful in tying this all together. Our last verse and our fifth step is know your team. Know your team. Look at verse 6 again. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, we've already discussed, we understand and we are prepared that the world will not listen unless God grants them repentance and faith. We pray that he would use us in that capacity that that would take place. And then in the end of the verse, John gives a, a summary statement for discernment. That's to say... John speaking, in essence, what I have just said previously, this is how you know truth and error. Having said that, I mentioned I wanted to connect this last step of knowing your team to our strength from step three or verse four. Here's the point. You've heard me say this before. But Christianity is not a lone ranger faith. John states here, he who knows God listens to us. There's a sense of collective unity. Not to mention, and I haven't mentioned it until now, strategically speaking, there's a reason for that. But throughout this passage, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and then two times in verse 6, John writes with the plural you in the Greek language. And then here in verse 6, as he's beginning with the yous, although plural, switching in verse 6 to we are from God. We need each other. Even within the illumination passage that we looked at in chapter 2. When John was admonishing them that they did not need these teachers, if you recall. We made sure to address that that does not mean that we don't need teachers. John was referring to the false teachers that they did not need. But they have an individual illuminating work of the Spirit to rightly discern and divide the word of God. We cannot be alone in this battle. We have an individual power within the spirit within us. But God has also provided the church as a whole. 
a church that's anchored in sound and strong biblical leadership. We wouldn't have been here for 170 plus years without discernment. And by God's grace, together, collectively, we will continue to be long past us if the Lord tarries in the rapture of his church. As for us here, would we let these steps always be our individual as well as collective hearts concerning discernment? That we would know the need. We are not naive to the threats that face us. That we would know the truth even simplistic as it can be in the fact that Christ is the incarnate one and the divine one. All the while understanding because of the spirit that abides in us, we will continue to grow in our knowledge of the truth, to know our strength. That it is the spirit of God that resides within us that is greater than he that is in the world. Our warhead. And then to know our enemy, that it's not the world, but the God of this world. And then in turn, what is the remedy to the enemy? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not even man-centered gimmicks and philosophy. And then finally, that we would know our team. That we would be a people committed to discernment collectively, individually, loving one another in this battle that we fight. That's our hearts. I know it's your heart. Let's fight it together. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you so much. We worship you, we glorify you, Lord, that you came to this, this earth to live a perfect and sinless life. But Lord, you had to leave in order that you would leave us with the comforter. You paid the price, accomplished our redemption on the, Christ, on the cross, and then left us with the spirit of God that is greater than the Antichrist the spirit of the Antichrist that lives and operates within this world, opposing us. Lord, you're causing us a devotion, a commitment, a passion to love you more through your word in order that we would be found rightly dividing it, rightly discerning it. Would you cause in us, Lord, to be a people who desire that those that are still lost would come through repentance and faith. Lord, would you use us as a means to proclaim this message of salvation through the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we lift up the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and worship you here today each and every day. In the mighty and precious name of our Savior, we pray.